Hello and welcome to Platforms and Pitfalls. We're a game design podcast that looks at five games every month to explore a single game idea. I'm Rowan. And I'm Blue. And we are people who think that game design is cool and worth talking about and hope that you feel the same way about listening to game design conversation. Our topic for this month is flexible difficulty. Did you want to describe that to the audience? Sure. So in this context, we're talking about flexible difficulty in how a game allows players to make the game itself easier or harder, but also how that game allows the players to focus on different aspects within the game. And difficulty is, of course, a relative concept based on many factors, such as experience with the genre of developer, knowledge base in general terms, and, of course, players' physical ability. And our first game is one that I think we both really committed to seriously for the first time for this being Resident Evil 4, which is probably the most famous example of adaptive difficulty, I'd say. Would you agree there? Definitely high up on a lot of lists for a game that is just quietly trying to manage its experience for the player. Along with that experience is just the difficulty, what it's throwing at the player, what challenges the player is going to encounter. And Resident Evil has a very specific thing it's going for. Like A lot of these survival horror games want players to feel like they've got not quite enough resources to get through everything the way they want, but enough to actually do so. And for someone who's very bad at shooting and conserving ammo in these sort of games, I've always been pushed away because I'm very bad at shooting. And I was pleasantly surprised that after a while, Resident Evil's dynamic difficulty gave me the feeling that everyone told me these games were good at giving, which I hadn't experienced in my past attempts to play these games. So you described that as being a stressful experience, right? Like you knew you had the resources and the capability to go through so but you had to stress and worry about what resources you had available and how you were spending it. That's interesting to me, right? Because in my opinion, this is fascinating as a discussion of difficulty because it's invisible to the player. So I'll get into that again, but do you want to describe some of the specifics for the behind the scenes on how Resident Evil manages this difficulty scaling? Sure, so Resident Evil basically functions with 10 ranks that you can be between throughout your experience. Each rank sort of functions as a difficulty level. When you start the game, you can choose easy, normal, or pro. Easy caps you at rank 6, normal is most of the full spectrum, and pro caps you at the hardest rank being 10. And various in-game actions such as missing with shots, failing quick time events, dying, reduce your score, and various actions such as hitting enemies, killing enemies, succeeding quick time events, increase your score to bring you up to a higher rank and thus more difficult. And that ranking system affects the damage you take, the damage you deal, and a lot of little minor things such as headshot chances, hitbox sizes that can subtly make the game easier or harder. And of course at some point changing actual enemy placement. Now the kind of interesting thing about about this is that it's one of those systems where if it does its job right, you never know it's there. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why it's so, I don't know if I would say infamous, but you know, it's so well known. It's that a lot of players got through the game, never knew it existed until someone talked about its design and revealed this to them. And they had this kind of epiphany moment of, oh my God, did it really do that for me? Yeah. And some players, Um, it's worth noting, really feel cheated. So I was doing a lot of research today to find out exactly how this system worked. And I found dozens of forum topics going, oh, Resident Evil 4 is just cheating your experience. You're not really succeeding. And those sort of things are very common about the game, actually. It's very hard to kind of, 
think of this difficulty con- control, difficulty modulation, if you will, in isolation of everything else in the game, I think. The other thing to bring into context for discussing Resident Evil 4 is, in my opinion, how well it handles pacing. And that's kind of why it wants this difficulty modulation. So a lot of people think about it as just, oh, they're taking away the challenge or they're making the game harder just to uh, pad out game time. I actually want to highlight why you want to do this difficulty modulation, which is, in this case, providing the player with that stressful experience that we were just talking about before this. If you get the player into this situation where they're constantly worried about ammo, resources, healing items, stuff like that, then you get the player in this state where they're kind of always worried about the game, but also wanting to push through carefully, right? Like, they, they want to get through the next challenge because they want to get to, like, the save point or they just want to progress through the game, but they have to do so so carefully. Yes. And they can't always play in the way that they might naturally go to. So if someone doesn't play these sort of games, I want to shoot exactly. things. Whereas the game kept resources low enough, even within the realm of changing difficulties, that I still had to manage my shots and not just fire like a madman. It's not that dynamically difficult. But it does always keep me on yeah. my toes with what I'm using. Thank you for like articulating what I was failing to get to there. The pull, uh, tug of war between the player's desires and like the game wanting to just make it a stressful experience like, like such a great context we both had kind of similar experiences with kind of a shared moment in different points of the game but i think are really like telling to how this game feels successful yeah so one of the first major bosses i had been going really badly and then in the lead up to it i was collecting a bunch of ammo and thought oh this game's overcorrecting for how bad i've been but i got to the boss encounter and i finished it with three bullets left which felt like it succeeded in its goals like I started that battle feeling like confident and ready and as I went through that battle I slowly sort of felt like oh no I might not have enough bullets left to finish this off but I did and you had a similar experience at a different point yeah like just scraping by by the skin of your teeth I had yeah I had the similar experience much earlier in the game so this is maybe 10-15 minutes into Mm -hmm. the game by this point you encounter enemies in small groups Uh, ones twos threes in every other encounter one of the two or three enemies would drop some handgun ammo. By the time I reached the first village square area within the game, I had 58 bullets or something close to that number. This is so many bullets that you are taking up a second stack of bullets in your inventory. And I felt like, oh, this is an action game now, apparently. You know, under you know, with the knowledge that I'm playing a Resident Evil game, scarcity is supposed to be this thing that the game wants to promote. I have so many bullets and I've been killing a couple of enemies and getting more bullets than I've been putting into them. I walked into the town village square thing and it starts this event where someone screams at me and suddenly all the enemies in the village start walking at me slowly, menacingly, and I start taking pot shots. And then I run and I turn around and I reload and I take more pot shots and I back myself into a corner safely and I have my back to the wall now and I'm really dedicated to either killing them or being overrun and I'm looking at my bullet count and thinking, okay, that's going down, it's going down. Right, very soon, I'm mentally preparing myself for switching to only melee and then the event ends uh, like a bell rings out through the village square and all the zo- and all the not zombies the enemies start lumbering off in that direction and i get a cutscene and i had five bullets remaining from feeling like i was massively overstacked because ah that's weird this game is just throwing ammo at me for me to use to okay yeah i'm still playing a resident evil game i, I think that was a great moment yeah and i think that if i had had the chance 
to play longer, I would have had a lot of similar moments. I spent a lot of time on the very edge of my teeth for a while. I think it took a while to really work out my skill level because I was not failing any quick time events. And when I got through, I went through without taking any hits. So I think I went up, very up and down quite a lot for a while before it leveled out and found something that worked for me. So I had a very frustrating first hour, I guess. And then it settled down to like consistently putting me on the edge, but not constantly failing. And there's a weird kind of place where games like this sit, where they're doing things behind the scenes, but they're doing things logically just as invisibly as possible to the player. It's kind of an, an unfortunate side effect that the more people like us talk about how really cool this system is, the less cool it ends up being in the long run because people know that it's working its magic behind the scenes. So hopefully if someone tries this game, Resident Evil 4, based on our recommendation, you'll go in and try to just play as naturally as possible to see if you can notice it at all. That's actually the other thing. While it was really cool and I know that it did this in hindsight, in comparison with other people's experiences, I did not feel at the time that it was modulating for me. Yes, I was really trying to pay attention to it. And it was very difficult to find those nuances because, of course, this system doesn't want to be spotted. So it's not going to do things as blatant as throw in large amounts of extra enemies or suddenly like slash amounts. Although it's worth noting that at a certain point, you can play bad enough to entirely skip certain boss fights. So there are points where it will actually be blatantly obvious that the game has changed on you yeah but you need to work for a long time to get it down that far it's honestly it's just really great to have this kind of system because you want as many players as possible to play your game and if your game can cater to the different difficulty levels that makes it like that makes the game itself appealing that is super ideal and i was really worried going in that really bad at shooters maybe it won't adapt enough for me but it ultimately didn't i got a bit of the very special experience that this game has just on an accessibility level that's really appreciated because while i'm good at a lot of other games this is a blind spot for me so resident evil sort of this space it's going for a very specific feeling as is our next game resident evil is about sort of adjust based on how bad you're doing pi is more about adjusting based on how well you're doing to some extent so pi is a very interesting game it's a sort of visual novel slash sports game by supergiant games who are responsible for bastion and transistor and it's a game that's more or less about playing a fantasy sport to ascend from the underworld is that about an accurate description? Yeah, that sounds like it could be on the backs of mm -hmm. the box. Back of the box, sorry. So one thing that I think we really like about Pyre's approach to difficulty compared to, say, Resident Evil's is that it's all very much ingrained in the narrative. Like, everyone is actively pursuing the goal of becoming enlightened and ascending from the underworld. And in order to do that, you have to do it one by one. You can't send everyone up at once. Sending someone to what is their narrative goal removes them from your party. And usually that's removing one of your best characters from the party because only characters that have received a certain amount of enlightenment which is experience points can actually ascend in more kind of game design speak i suppose is the term i want to use here this would yep. be considered a negative feedback loop do well in the game quote unquote get punished uh what's really great about this is that this punishment is your reward if the game does its job well or does its job at all you should care about these characters you should want them to succeed at their goal you should want them to attain it you want them to ascend 
end. Just so happens that ascension means you no longer have access to them. Either their utility in the the sport or just having them around because they were someone that you cared for. Mm, and I really focused, like I played all my first however many matches with the same three characters unless the game forced me not to. I played as the main normal human man, the dog, and the vagabond lady that rhymes with Grey. And they were my core team. They were the only characters I could choose to ascend and it was a tough choice because I developed a very consistent, effective strategy with them. And getting rid of any of them would fundamentally change how I need to play from the future. I was in a kind of weird position with this. Again, we're going into these games that are trying to do interesting things with the difficulty. I guess in this case, not necessarily how hard or easy the game is, but how much the game forces you to explore the different play styles it has. I'm forcing you to choose between using different players, uh, different characters mm. in the game, sorry. And so I was very aware of this, and I mm. was paying a lot of attention to what Pyre does to ease this negative feedback loop. Once you lose your character, what does your team look like? Uh, what does the rest of your team look like if you've been ignoring them completely? I just really love what I found there. Uh, so I did not do what you did as a result of meta knowledge of the game. And also because I was kind of interested in um, how it would play out. I still wanted to see how focusing on one character affected the game experience. So I did that. I focused on one character, but I swapped other characters out relatively freely across my first initial games. And it gave this kind of weird experience where because I'm so focused on seeing how losing a character would feel like I noticed all the game, all that the game was trying to do to ease that process. And it has a couple of really interesting mm -hmm. mechanics in place that help this along. For example, enlightenment. So if a character doesn't participate in the sports battle encounter, they don't get experience. And experience is what is used to level up and work towards enlightenment. Uh, sorry, work towards ascension. They instead gain. It, 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 am I right? Is the stat called Enlightenment? Yeah, the set is called Enlightenment and they need to be sufficiently enlightened in order to return to the surface world. Okay, so I'm thinking of a different stat then. If they don't participate in the combat, they get something that doubles the amount of experience they get. What is that something? Uh, I don't know what inspiration. That is. Inspiration is the term that they use in the game. Oh, um, I didn't even notice that mechanic. I saw like a portion of their bars being a different green. color, but it not being experience. Yep. That's inspiration. So the inspiration points are worth, um, when you like eventually gain experience for that character will will gain it twice the amount of will gain it twice the rate basically. Okay. So it levels the character up faster once that character has a lot of inspiration from not participating in battles. Ah, um, that's really interesting. So it's quicker, so I, as you progress, it'll be quicker to catch up anybody that you decide to take interest in. Yes, that's right. Absolutely. I also love the narrative consequence of this, right? These are characters fighting for their right to return, uh, to ascend, to go away from the underworld. And they're seeing... It's not their, to just leave the underworld, it's to go back to their the, old life. Yeah, to go back to the commonwealth. Back. Yeah. yeah. And so the narrative of this mechanic is that they watch their friends and teammates participate in this combat, earning their way towards ascension, and therefore they get inspired to do so as well. I really love that. I think that just works well on many levels. Mm, it works well in the narrative flavor, and that feeds into the gameplay, because obviously when you lose a character, like in my current team setup, I have lost a fundamental part of my team, team composition that no one else really feels, because the characters are very mechanically distinctive. I haven't run into any two characters 
characters that feel like they play the same way. So experiencing, like having to relearn a new team composition strategy, it really makes me more comfortable doing that if I know the next setup will be faster to get people up to speed. So it's not necessarily that the game got harder for mm. you, but in one aspect, it reset to as if you were playing the game for the yes. first time. I couldn't use the same optimal and tactic I had. I had to learn new tactics. Oh my God, new tactics. And I really like this because it's not just a difficulty slider. It is the game is going to offer you lots of stuff that you can do and you can get through a lot of it by doing the same thing. But eventually the game has to take some of your toys away. You have to learn to play with everything. So unfortunately, I had meta experience and meta understanding of what was going on. But this meant that I was exploring a lot of this early on by switching characters out early and switching them relatively often. I got to experience a lot of the things that the game was offering quickly, immediately. I had some meta knowledge, but not enough, clearly. My, I sort of walked in with the plan of, oh, I'm going to take my three characters and I'm just going to ascend the people I'm not playing as and that'll be fine. But of course, I can't do that. That's silly. And yep. so when I got that to that point, silly. it was an even harder choice for me trying to metagame it because, well, I only had three characters to choose from and they were the only three characters I've been playing. That's actually kind of funny and really cool. Like, that's a cool it, moment. And it was um, because I was really pumped up to get rid of the large demon lady, Jordiel. Jordiel? Jordariel. Jordariel. Because I didn't like playing as them. I didn't want anything to do with them. My team didn't like them that much narratively. I was like, yeah, you can, you can ascend be rid of you and then I can have just the characters I care about left over and work out what to do with them later. Coincidentally she's the one that I played in every fight. I liked her the oh, most. really? Um, resonated very well with her personality actually. No the character that I <laughs> that's very funny found the most gripping and like I feel kind of bad because I'm like I don't think I can ever let her ascend because I need her too much which is the girl who rhymes Faith, with Grey. Or the, the rhyme yeah the girl that rhymes with yeah. Grey. What did you go for for her name by the Jay. way? Jay. Um, X-A-E Ah kind of a Shay yeah. but not not quite yeah, a shay, okay. harder Jay. Uh, yeah, yeah, Jay. Yeah, I can yeah, see it. So. Yeah, cool. I went with Fade because I like Fade, like Rancy of Fairies. And while we're talking about difficulty, this is more difficult on the developer's part because there are a few English voiceovers that happen and they voice certain characters' names. And to go through the effort of voicing a single character's name in however many different ways is a lot of extra effort for something that is a very small touch, ultimately. It's I really appreciate kind of like, that moment. Yeah, it's this kind of like attention or, or will willingness to pay attention to these small details that is very important and what sets the game narrative apart like more so than in most games i think pyre had to do something like this because it needs you to be invested in the story for this this critical moment where the difficulty not spikes but the difficulty like alters the way you play for that to have more meaning besides just gameplay you it, you had to care about the characters hmm. and it's also worth noting that pyre has another interesting aspect to its management difficulty which is that you don't need to succeed to progress. Yes. So another fascinating aspect of the way it handles flexible difficulty uh, and the way, you know, you eventually lose characters is that participation in a combat provides you with the lion's share of experience rather than winning. And actually, do you... Yes, it's what? 350 XP to participating and 150 winning. for winning. How much for losing? I didn't lose a single match. So I think it's 354 participation. That, this is poor of us. I should have thought about this and done the research. From memory, you gain more for losing. Oh wow, you gain more for losing. Actually, that doesn't I... work in the that doesn't work in the narrative. Maybe you gain inspiration from losing. That might be it. You gain inspiration for losing, which means the next time you lose, you overall probably have or, a net gain or, or whatever. I, this, this is very poor of us.
us. We really should have done the research. So do not quote us on any of the things we're saying. I'm I'm spitballing here. But but the idea mm-hmm. is that actually no, that doesn't make any sense. No, I don't think you gain more for losing. You must gain less. That doesn't work in the in the mechanics otherwise. But I thought it, what it, I thought you were saying was you gain the bulk of the experience, like the 350 for participating. Yeah, and then the maybe amount of bonus you get for, for winning is relatively minor compared to that participation. Yes, yes, that is actually what I was getting at, and then I got sidetracked by wondering what you get for losing. And that sort of aspect of allowing people to just fail their way forward means they get to experience the game sort of no matter what they do. And, and the narrative a, changes as well. Like there, there are narrative consequences to failing. There are narrative consequences yeah. to failing, yeah. And I always like, it's one of the things I've always respected about the David Cage games, oddly enough, is that they have a narrative that continues regardless of who you let die. Yeah. Even if you let all but one of the major characters die, the narrative still finds a way to continue. Pyre finds a way to progress, even if you lose most of the games in it. Yep. But of course, you want to win the games because if you don't, no one can ascend, which means that your quest is meaningless. Yep. But that was sad to think about, yes. Yeah. And there's also like some arguments like, oh, if you want to optimize your chances for winning, you should purposely fail some rights so that you don't ascend, so that you can have your optimal party at all times. That feels bad from a narrative perspective. Which is for the characters. It feels bad from a narrative perspective. Like, that is not what you want for the characters. And that's a really interesting dynamic that a number of games touch on this ascension idea that always creates this interesting dynamic between, I want this character to help me succeed, but I'm also responsible for bringing them to heaven or reviving them or what have you. Valkyrie Profile brings us this issue quite a lot in its narrative, actually. Mm. So yeah, Pi's got a lot of interesting things going on in how it really asks you to engage with the narrative and difficulty. Another game looks at how, I guess, the social way you play the game interacts with difficulty, which is Trine. We looked at Trine 2 specifically for this one, and we played it three player, two player, and then I played a bit one player, and I assume you have two in the past. In the past, yes. So we really approach this from the the notion that having multiple people playing changes your goals for certain sections of the game. So uh, giving a small example, with one character, you may easily build a path with the wizard, for example, and just get across. Or cross a chasm with the thief by swinging across with it, with their grappling hook. Now, once you add players to this equation, this starts to get slightly more complicated. It becomes like one of those weird math riddles where you're trying to cross the river and you can't have the fox and the sheep on the same bank or something like that. Because you have to get all the play. The idea being that you have to get all the players past whatever obstacle and they may not have the easiest time of it. And you will need to work together to compensate for this weakness. Yeah, and every character has distinctly different traits and so what is easy for one character is more challenging for the others and it created a really good feeling a lot of the time of we all have to work together and think about situations everyone's in in order to progress but when we were playing this I was mostly playing the thief character who has a grappling hook and while most games are improved pretty objectively by grappling hooks often I was able to get in front of everyone else without caring about them and find the next checkpoint which drags everyone to you and so it eliminated a lot of this potential interesting moments yeah so it definitely had the potential to be the game that we described but it probably had a focus on the single player component of it mm, and it felt so it didn't quite as organically develop difficulty with the addition of players yeah and uh, then when we were playing with two players a lot of our solutions felt very hacky i, I want to clarify it's not clear that two players cause hacky solutions we may have chosen to go to two players at the right point in the game where 
where we couldn't figure out what we we're supposed to do and therefore hacked together a weird physics solution. I mean, that's true. It's not necessarily the, the game itself enticed that, but it was noticeable that when we were a three-person team, it felt like we were playing the game in a certain way that felt organic. When we were a two-person team, it felt like we hit like match. two roadblocks back to back in terms of puzzles. Yes. It could just be that we're not good at the puzzles thing. Yeah, I think the person we lost was the was the mastermind behind the game and uh, we were just the muscle <laughs> I mean, that's probably not inaccurate, actually. Fairtrain's a bit of an unfortunate example, but I think that it has all the building blocks it needs to do what it wanted to do. But it, I think in part because of the social experience, like difficulty, with, like if you had too many people keeping you behind, you want a mechanism that lets an advanced player just propel people forwards a bit. You see this in lots of games, like even the new Super Mario Brothers games with the bubble mechanics. You don't want to cause too much hindrance by being bad at the game. So having those systems is really important for social aspects but it removes a certain part of the actual very difficulty that these situations should present yeah i think that trying could have made this more difficult and more annoying like a simple one is introducing collisions between players or making players more cognizant of where each other are and like having that matter a bit more so you collide with each other in the new super mario brothers example that you just brought up right yes but you don't which means that small spaces are distinctly different you yep. can result directly in other players deaths and all manner of shenanigans yeah and that's something that the game wanted to promote in the case of the new super mario brothers example mm. and i think this really plays into why trying to doesn't really present as flexible of a difficulty curve as uh, it could and it's really the underlying mechanics that do or don't support it so where pyre had a lot of mechanics that supported flexible team compositions because at the end of the day you were going to find yourself in a position where your team was going to be forced to change and therefore needed to be able to um, use multiple different characters trying to didn't have a number of things that would have made it easy uh, more interesting to have multiple players for example walling off checkpoints until everyone got there or making players more aware of where the other players are things like that small mechanics that support the goal of this kind of flexible difficulty flexible ways of playing mm, and I guess like what's in there like trying I think had a specific experience it was aiming to give you which was I think it was primarily working towards a single player experience even though it has the word try in its name like it specifically denotes it's about three things but it does not feel like its focus was on that three player or two player situation even though it has a lot of systems in there about it oh, okay like the weird kind of defense that I will give here is that the trine is an artifact in the game that caused our three protagonists to inhabit one body effectively oh that's right so it is actually narratively true that they should only be in one space correct it is narratively accurate for only one player we are actually breaking the game by having multiple people that uh in terms of its narrative that actually makes a lot of sense i had forgotten about that because it's been so long since i started a trying game especially the first one because that's where it's really talked about so i think like thinking of that idea of narrative versus narr narrative implications let's talk about a very story heavy game near automata you and i came out last year to great success and fanfare from a lot of the western gaming press and the Japanese gaming press and was for many people the game of the year and Nier Automata does a number of things that Platinum often do but in slightly different ways so Nier has I think it has two main points of interest for its players that are worth separating and talking about a bit you've got the narrative side because Nier attempts to tell a very strong powerful narrative and you've got st 
strong platinum combat at the other side. And there are lots of players that may care about the story, but not the combat. And Nier's difficulties sort of let you choose how much you want to take into the combat side of things. It's probably how I would summarize it and how it's looking at flexible difficulty. So the major distinction that Nier has to the games that we've talked about previously, being Resident Evil 4, Pyre, and Trine 2, is that Nier Automata's difficulty modulation, I keep using that word, adjustment is very player driven and very and the player is quite conscious of what they're doing when they're adjusting the difficulty for this not done automatically by the game not done dynamically through in-game events but done as a choice that the player makes and there you've got your basic difficulty modes i think it goes very hard hard normal and then easy and on easy mode you get access to a special type of equipment called auto chips that allow you to automate a number of aspects of the game for you and they range from being relatively minor such as automatically using items when you're low in health to automatically firing at enemies when they're targeted to automatically dodging all attacks for you effectively making you more or less invincible unless you do something very dumb. I liked trying to fight this automatic dodging by making it still get hit. You can do that. You can actually still it's very funny trying to beat the computer trying to save you. It is. And for Nia, sometimes games that have very strong narratives, players get disinterested in the gameplay, or they want to see the rest of the story, but they can't manage the gameplay, and they want to just push forwards. And a lot of other Platinum games have a casual auto mode, as they usually call it, where a lot of things are automated. But what I really like about Nia's easy mode is the amount that you can pick exactly what is automated, exactly what isn't automated, and you can engage on it to the level that you care about. It's also kind of neat how it's tied into the game's mechanics. So not necessarily the narrative, but the game has a protagonist that is an android, and equipment are uh, modification chips that the android equips. Just equip a chip that does these things for you. Makes sense in the world. Hmm. And it makes sense within the thing, like you can equip parts of your HUD, so you can equip your life gauge, so you can unequip your life gauge and not see it. You can unequip your mini map and not see it. So it actually sounds like a reasonability. Oh yeah, I'm going to automate my combat instead of having a visible life gauge. That sounds like a plausible trade-off for a robot. Yeah, it's just kind of neat. Like, this entire package for for this handling this difficulty is just very well put together, tied off with a nice bow, that kind of thing. Yeah, and I think like for games with strong narrative aspects, so Pyre, um, when you die, sorry, when you lose matches, you still continue the story. Like, you're not impeded from seeing more story to change the story that you see. Resident Evil has a story, but I don't think people are playing actively for it, per se. But Nier Automata, you're likely to be there to see the story. If the game was too difficult, many players might have to stop partway through and not experience it. Which would be a shame, because those who would stop because it's difficult aren't there to engage with Platinum Combat. I think that's really important, especially for disabled gamers, because Nier Automata allowing you to choose how much you want to engage with the system really lets you tweak the system to what you can and can't do physically. It would have been nice if the auto chips were enabled on modes other than easy, but I can see why they chose to limit it to that so that players who are playing normally didn't feel like they should equip these chips for optimal play. What do you feel about the auto chip being limited to only easy mode? I think it's fine. Look, at the point where you are automatically dodging and attacking you're not you don't care about the amount of health that the enemy has correct me if i'm wrong the major differences between the difficulties is how much health the enemies have and how much damage they deal that's primary you do have different attack patterns that bosses will engage in so bosses engage in 
more yeah, so that's the that's the that's the that's the rub of it right yeah that's the only part of it that's a bit iffy i'm not sure of i don't know how i feel to be completely honest about that but there but, are things like like auto attack and auto dodge they're pretty like i am not engaging with the system level of engagement but you have to yeah. auto shoot because the physical yes. manipulation of like oh keeping the button fight because in the game you have a robot companion that can fire when you hold the attack button if you're targeted to something yeah. you should more or less always be firing it's there's no reason not to for the most part for most of us who are used to these kinds of games that button is just held down every time they acquire a target you're not really thinking about that and if you have limited movement or you're not familiar with holding a controller well then that's actually very difficult to do yeah and even me as an able-bodied gamer like i just found it a hassle to have to keep holding down this button that i would always hold down anyway i think it's i mean there's definitely room for argument for why you would want the auto chips or at least some of them on higher difficulties but i very much went at it when i was playing and when i was testing out the easy mode and auto chip system i very much went at it with an all or nothing approach Mm -hmm. And I don't know, maybe it was designed in this way. And if it was designed in this way, yeah, if you're using auto attack and auto dodge, you don't care about how much health the opponent that has or deals. When you initially so. played Nier Automata, did you use the easy mode or chips? Quick, like, cliff notes on how the game tells its narrative. It is split into what are called routes, where some players misunderstand and think that finishing a route means you finish the game and then you do the game again to a different route for a different story. That's not actually true. The game tells one pretty coherent narrative story through different perspectives that it splits through different routes and you see different times in the narrative through these routes. I spent one full route in easy mode, um, route B specifically. Mm-hmm. And I actually spent most of that round in easy mode too. I didn't go all the way. I was sort of tired. I was told, like, oh, you should keep playing until Route C. Route C is where it gets amazing. And so I was, like, disengaged from the combat. And so I was just like, I'm going to turn on these auto chips and I'm just going to engage with the story. I didn't turn them all on. I didn't like auto attack. It felt like too much was removed from me. But I did keep on auto shoot because that made the hacking mm-hmm. sections of that mode exponentially easier, specifically. Yeah. And I actually, you know, I got through that moment. And when I felt ready to engage with combat again, while still getting all the story I wanted to receive, I was able to do that. Now, of course, since we both mm-hmm. tuned in to auto chips at the same time it's probably a fair critique of the game to say it was not holding our interest at this critical juncture but i have a weird relationship with the game i think and i'm have... trying to be unbiased i think we both have and not let it... and I... yeah we both have a slightly odd relationship with the game we like this game a lot both of us but like not in the same way that many other people liked it i think but that's not what we had to discuss yeah. and i think that for its different difficulties, it allowed a wide audience to really engage with its gameplay. Especially compared to its predecessor, yeah. which did not have any of these flexible difficulty options. It was considered a very niche game. It was considered a very it. niche game. And while it wasn't especially hard, there were a number of moments that if you were not very comfortable with what the game presented to you, there would be no way to really progress. And that would have been very frustrating in a long-form RPG such as itself. I just wanted to point out something that might be true, but it's very hard to say because of my uh, lukewarm response to Mm -hmm. a character in the game in that I felt halfway through the route that the game become very dull. Keeping in mind, I used all of the auto chips available to me, including attack. And as a kind of weird consequence of this, felt like, wow, and this is why games, you know, challenge. Because 
if they're too easy, they get very boring. I think that all the chips would really, I would have completely dropped the game probably if I used them all. Mm -hmm. And it is interesting. Do you allow a flexible enough difficulty system that allows a player to ruin the game for themselves? I think it's fine. So one game that's not on the list that I think does something interesting with difficulty would be Celeste. Um, yes, Celeste nearly made it on this list instead of one of the other games, actually. It would have been here for a very overt difficulty scaling sliding system where it allows you to change so it's a platformer at heart but it allows you to change many aspects of it and one of the more useful ones would be slow down time to give you more time to react to very high pace platforming but it does all of this behind many warnings or a warning of this is not how the game is intended to be played if you would like some assistance in playing the game go through this menu get to it know that this is not the developer intended way to play it but we want you to be able to play it more than we want you to play it our way so I can see I feel like yeah near Automata having something like that saying something like that maybe you know smartly in game via narrative or mechanics and then just kind of gating people from this is a this is going to be a weird experience if you do all of this be sure you want to do it and then do it that's fine but if you find yourself not enjoying it maybe try our way you know something like that yeah I definitely think that Celeste and near Automata chose to have these systems for sort of similar reasons because Celeste has a very good narrative and I've if I had found it too difficult because I just wasn't good at platformers, I probably would have felt a bit cheated not being able to see the rest of that narrative, even though the difficulty is really totally tied into that narrative itself. But that's not the game, and that's not the game we want to discuss too much about because we feel that Nier Automata covers a lot of similar ground, right? Yeah, but absolutely. Then the, the point of all of this effort from the developer is, I think I said it before, we want you to play the game, but not so much that we don't want you to play it our way. Yes. I think the next game really ties into that, though which is The World Ends With You, also by Square Enix, but by a very different team, by Team Jupiter within Square Enix, as opposed to by Platinum, who was an external contractor. It is a Tetsuya Nomura RPG set in Shibuya, Tokyo, that actually, like Pyre, is about you fighting for your right to be reborn to life again. Yep. And The World Ends With You has... We're not going to go through all its systems, because there's a lot of them, but... There's a lot the of The World them. Ends With You has unintuitive, difficult combat system that takes a while to get used to and the word ends with you gives you a lot of different ways or di different different choices in how deeply you want to engage with that so the main crux of its battle system is that you manage two distinctly different battle systems simultaneously it's probably the easiest way to say it your difficulty options yep. your attention is split between two screens uh, so traditionally this game was on the ds the nintendo yep. ds it has since been ported to mobile devices where it just splits your screen into no, it and so you 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 effectively have to look at two screens at once. Yeah. And in, that's in the mobile version, honestly, a big bigger. In the oh, mobile sorry, version, yeah, it yeah. plays fundamentally differently in combat. The your additional your additional oh, character is relegated to being a separate chip, more or less, that you have to use in tandem oh, with okay. your normal chip setup. Oh, I did not know that. So it actually plays. So the combat system is fundamentally different, and it works in a number of similar ways. Mm -hmm. But it's certainly a lot more difficult in the DS system. It's a lot more distinct and separate. Right. Yeah, I was gonna say that sounds easier to manage in the long run. Do you still have yeah, a screen where you can see them? So they're on the screen with you. Oh. 
So you so you both play on the same screen. Right. You mostly play Neku's combat, uh-huh. but you can use that you have one unique pin. Basically, the that is your partner. A, that is yeah. your partner, and optimally you do so in the original game. You do some combat with Neku, some combat with your partner to cha- switch around a combo puck that increases your multipliers. In the mobile version, you use that character's pin for a while to do that exchange to increase your multipliers. Yep. I was hoping we weren't going to discuss all that, but oh well. Okay, we're here now. That, you can get the idea that there's a lot to factor in with this game's combat system. In the DS version, you can opt to effectively automate the top screen, which is usually the simpler one. Yes. And you can delay that. Like, if you don't deal with it for three seconds, it automatically manages itself. If you don't deal with it for six, it manages itself. Or it's completely manual and will never take over, or it's never manual and will always be automatic. And if you have it on manual, you get various bonuses at the end of combat. So you can choose how much you engage with its funky system versus just being half the system. As well as and, it, and you get some rewards for doing so, but you have, but it really isn't make or break rewards. You can easily not get those and just make it up, make up for it with you know maybe one more battle for every ten that you do. Not that bad. Yeah, for automating top system, you're more or less just making it. You're you're making mistakes on that side less punishing, as opposed to getting significant rewards, yep. I guess. But your other main way to alter the system is to change your level. You can always go back to level one or any space between that and your max level, and that'll reduce your HP. So basically, you can make yourself, you can either increase the amount of punishment and mistakes you can have, or make yourself have to play more and more perfectly. And the game's overall relatively easy. It seems balanced around always being level one. Yep. But in exchange for being level one or being at a lower level than max, you get a number of bonuses to drop rates on all the items in the game. Which includes money, which includes abilities that you can use. So it's an interesting mix because by playing harder, you can also make the game easier because you have more powerful tools to advance with. Yeah. And additionally, it's a weird kind of of loop because playing harder makes it easier eventually. And additionally, you can also multiply your level multiplier by engaging in multiple combats sequentially without recovering after combat yep. and a kind of pseudo survival marathon mode yeah you can basically construct a survival marathon of up to initially four encounters and yep. eventually 16 encounters towards the end of the game which is quite a long session but the rewards you get from doing such a mammoth session are exponentially higher it's like a build your own boss fight if you think about it it is kind of and this system being a bit difficult having all these options lets it be very accessible for those like Nier Automata who want to just engage with the story who really want to engage with the combat and grinding without wasting too much of their life on it because thanks to being able to multiply things up so high if you are confident in your skills you can get the insanely rare drops very consistently there's a weird kind of agency uh i don't know meta narrative feel where you decide oh this encounter or maybe this boss fight you know has beaten me twice i don't i don't want to deal with this anymore the kid gloves are coming off and you just put yourself up to your max level and you suddenly just go try and kill me now can't do it i have too much health there's a kind of cool moment where you can do that where you're always feeling like i'm, I'm just holding back like that's the only reason you have a chance i'm holding back so if i i just go at you with all i have i'm gonna win i, I there's some weird value in that did you ever feel like that like did that i definitely did yeah. there were a number of bosses in the second week of the game where i was just like nope i'm just progressing i am sick of trying yeah, to like, do this boss fight on level one and then it becomes not trivially easy but so much easier when you have the room yeah, to make you, mistakes you can make mistakes and i think limiting the level up to being health and making more mistakes is a really smart choice because really smart difficulty for a lot of people is more about how lenient am i allowed to play this 
this game in order to progress. How much attention you want to give it, how perfect you have to play the game. Yeah, and I think World of came out at this really interesting timing games, like right before mobile gaming was really becoming a thing. And the DS was sort of this pre-iPhone game era of trying to be more accessible to people and games trying to work out how to be more accessible to people while still being themselves. Yeah. I think the word ends you... I also want to point out... Oh, sorry, go on. Uh, so, yeah, I want to add on to all the systems that we've already talked about. It's not very... Like, it's actually relatively common of a system now, but you can adjust the difficulty from the menu screen in that game, in The World Ends With You. This, of course, affects... This also affects drop rates, in fact, causing certain items to drop as opposed to others. Yeah, it changes drop tables. Um, yeah, it changes the drop tables. Very good... I like that. Drop tables. Word of the day. My point being that the difficulty selection is also done in the menu. Yes, you can change at it any time. Really easy. Yeah, easy to get to option. Not hidden in in the settings or um, behind you know menus. Right there, you can see it all the time. Every time you go into your main menu, your difficulty is currently here. Do you want to make it easier or harder? Uh, and it's worth pointing. Like it puts all these things up front equal distance. Because remind me if I'm wrong about the UI, but you load your menu and at the bottom. You've got the slider for your level. Yep. And then above that, you've yep. got difficulty and auto. Right above that is difficulty on the left and then uh, manual uh, partner control on the right. Which means that every time you access the menu, the game basically is asking you, how do you want your experience to be? How difficult? How easy? Yep. And it makes it effortless to do so. Like Nier Automata, for all the praise we heaped on it for how like you can adjust it to what you want, it is hidden within a menu that is not the nicest thing to organize. Like rearranging your chips is kind of a pain. It's an active choice. You have to go and buy the chips yeah. as well you don't start with them in your inventory yeah, it's a... um, you have to know enough about the game to explore its merchant system before you can get at it so near automata like you have to spend time and effort really going towards that which i guess is the discouragement for doing it to start with whereas the word ends with you up front says oh yeah you can play this easy or hard do it how you like it's all good and it sort of feels very unjudgmental like non near you have to put it to easy mode assist mode you have to go through menus the word ends with you just has it up there as just a thing that feels like a mechanic rather than a difficulty slider. In fact, it is by default easier because when you level up, you go up the level. You have to go back down. That's a conscious choice to make the game harder for yourself. Yes. That as well is worth something. How much the player wants to consciously choose to make the game more difficult for themselves versus how much does the player want to consciously choose how much to make the game easier for themselves. Those are actually two different approaches that designers have to weigh up against each other. Yeah, and I also really think the world you succeeds in giving you distinct rewards for challenging yourself. Yeah, they're worthwhile, right? Yeah. Like, they're actually useful and important. Yeah, it is optimal play to push yourself to the limit, and because it's optimal play to do that and really thus make the most of your mechanics, the game really pushes you to play in what I think is the most fun way to play the game, but it also yep. lets you reach that comfortable middle ground as much as you want. Yeah, player choice in the difficulty. Yeah, player choice. Very overt player choice, but player choice. And this actually has a very, I mean, it's a bit of a tenuous link to the narrative but part of the title of the game the world ends with you is a phrase that the game throws at you a few times as you progress which is the world ends with how far you push yourself to extend yourself you need to put your hand out to interact yep. with the world it won't come to you kind of thing and this difficulty system will only engage you as much as you put yourself yep. out to engage with it which is kind of nice link to thematics but it's nowhere near as strong as Pyre mm. that's for sure so yeah those are the five games that we thought were really interesting with flexible difficulty and I think 
think all of them sort of have a slightly different spot. Resident Evil focuses much more on like a feeling, whereas Pyre, Nier, and The World Under the You are more about giving, well, Pyre is more about focusing on narrative and difficulty naturally tying in with narrative. And Nier and The World Under the You, I think, are really giving you the option how much you want to engage with the various systems in play. And Trine tried. Trine tried and definitely had potential and promise, but its focus wasn't in creating an, uh, a dynamic and flexible difficulty in multiple uh, in multiple player instances. And I do want to but say... But it definitely shows that there is potential where this small, I say small, adjustment of having an extra player can change the feel of the game completely. And I want to say, like, while we talked about trying negatively in the context of this thing, trying is a very good puzzle platformer, and even though it doesn't succeed in being flexibly difficult, it is still a good game. Yes, absolutely. So, do you have anything to say on flexible difficulty? Closing thoughts on flexible difficulty. I think that one aspect that more developers should explore is making games accessible in the kind of we want players to be able to play, regardless of whether or not it's the way we want them to play. Like that's more important to us. It's more important for us to share this narrative, this experience, rather than for players to necessarily play the way we want. But balanced with we know what is the best experience for our game. That's why we are making this. And so we're going to give you the tools, but we're also going to tell you, use them wisely. Use them only to ease the aspects of the game that you cannot deal with. But otherwise, the game is there to challenge you. Yeah, I very much feel that. And I really think that for the games that had a lot of player choice to them, they also really opened up to players of different physical abilities. And in the case of adaptive difficulty like Resident Evil, it brought a genre to me that I haven't really been able to engage with before. And that is kind of, and that is very noteworthy. Not kind of noteworthy, it's very noteworthy. Yeah, it's valuable. Yeah. Getting to experience more of these things is really cool. Yeah. And if you want to engage in some variable difficult, some flexible difficulty, you can choose to engage with platforms and pitfalls in various ways. You can find us on Twitter, on Facebook. You can email us. We'll have the email address and links to all those things in the show notes. If you want to ask us a question, feel free to do so, and we will hopefully answer it on the next episode. Thank you for coming and joining us today, Blue. Thank you. Thank you for hosting and being here. And thank you, everyone else, for listening. Yes, we look forward to hearing your responses and hope to see you next time. The opening and closing song, Random Thoughts by Audiobinger, is used under the attribution non-commercial license. Find links to Audiobinger's website in the show notes. And thanks to Zencaster as well, who after some tech issues, manually resync this entire podcast. Without them, we would have had to re-record, and while there were some audio problems, and perhaps we should have done so, we really appreciate the extra mile they went to when they didn't have to. And thank you so much for listening to our first show, and we hope that despite some opening issues, you'll keep listening to us and see our own highs and lows.